Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ali McCluskey. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by not one, but two amazing guests from Oxygen, Hussein Ahmed, founder and CEO, as well as Ryan Conway, head of business development and strategic partnerships. Oxygen is a modern, all-in-one financial platform designed for the 21st century economy, which means providing digital natives, creators, freelancers, sole proprietors, and all other variable income entrepreneurs with a banking partner that acutely understands the nuances of how they live and work. Increasingly known for its elegant and seamless UX, Oxygen was the first US neobank to launch with both consumer and small business accounts so that users can enjoy personal features like early deposits and cashback rewards, but can also create an LLC and model out cash flow projections for their business all within one app. Their motto, reject ordinary, banking for the extraordinary. As for the brains behind the operation, Hussein Ahmed, the founder and CEO, is a multi-time founder originally from Egypt. After selling his first company to a PE firm, Hussein completed his PhD in computer science at Virginia Tech, earned his MBA at Berkeley's Haas School of Business, built and exited another company called Transpose, and began freelance consulting in the Bay Area. While consulting, he recalls trying to take out a loan from Lending Club and being asked for 10 pages of documentation when they couldn't verify his less predictable income. Hence, the need for oxygen. And joining Hussein and I in the conversation is Ryan Conway, head of BizDev and Strategic Partnerships. Ryan leads growth and partner efforts focusing on product, distribution, and revenue at Oxygen, and previously held roles at MasterCard in digital partnerships, WorldPay in payments through the company's IPO, and completed his MBA at Thunderbird School of Global Management. In this episode, the three of us discuss redefining the gig economy beyond just Uber drivers and DoorDash deliverers to the full on-demand workforce, why Ryan says Hussein is the type of entrepreneur you run through a brick wall for, the material difference that aesthetics and design can make in customer engagement and NPS scores, the fun they've had running all sorts of marketing experiments from partnering with influencers to running ad campaigns on the back of buses, why many startups riding the neobank wave are quote unquote doomed to succeed given how much the segment is blowing up both funding and press-wise, their lessons learned from fundraising, particularly after raising their $17 million Series A from prominent investors, including Runa Capital, Plaid's William Hockey, Deutsche Bank's Frank Strauss, and NFL wide receiver Larry Fitzgerald, why building a capital-intensive, regulatory-sensitive fintech startup doesn't afford you the typical startup luxury of hiring hustlers to move fast and break things, and so, so much more. So with all of that said, let's get started. Hussein, Ryan, thank you for joining us and welcome to the Wharton FinTech podcast. How are you both? Thanks for having us, Adi. Uh, great. Yeah. Good to yeah, hear. Good to us. hear. Of course. Having Oxygen on is such a long time coming. You've been incredible partners to Wharton FinTech in recent years. And so it's just a privilege to continue the dialogue today. We like to kick off hearing a little bit about you. So maybe you can share about your backgrounds and your journeys leading up to Oxygen. And maybe Hussein, you want to kick us off. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, can I a bit about myself also? I like originally from Egypt, actually. 
actually kind of like the third successful company, I would say. <laughs> it's like a lot of things like in between. So uh, first, so actually first company back home in Egypt, and we sold that company to a PE firm in Dubai, and then moved to the US here uh, for grad school. So I joined Virginia Tech on the East Coast, got my master and PhD in computer science, and then like end up working for Amazon for a short stint like up in Seattle, and then quit Amazon's second company, which was actually called like Focus on SMB as well. It's called Transpose, and then after that, kind of quit Transpose. Like after that, like exit basically, uh, end up in the Bay Area for an MBA as well, kind of like at UC Berkeley Haas. And during that time, RCA, like Haas also offered this like executive MBA slash part-time MBA. So I was able basically to pick up that like kind of like hustles on the side. So I was working out of WeWork. And that's how I stumbled into this like freelance, like self-employed SMB persona of like how those guys like don't really have like the proper financial systems to serve that uh, customer segment. Awesome. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in here. So... I uh, started in fintech in 2013, coming out of a, an MBA program myself at uh, Thunderbird School of Global Management. I first joined a company, WorldPay. This is you know 2013. It was a private equity owned. I was with them for about two years on a very fast ride. They ended up uh, being the largest IPO on the London Stock Exchange in 2014. From there, I went to fall uh, PSP out of Boston called BlueSnap. Was there for about a year and then wanted to get a little bit more view into the issuing side of the house, because traditionally I've been a little bit more on the in-core payments, but on the acquiring side of the house. So I joined MasterCard, where I was on the digital partnerships team, effectively the you know face of Silicon Valley from MasterCard, and worked very closely with a lot of their you know household names, the squares into its Robinhood, so on and so forth. So when I met Hussein and, and how I came to Oxygen, it was a you know, small team out of Y Combinator. I think I was about five or six, fifth or sixth employee. And just his vision is is addicting, and he's the kind of entrepreneur that you kind of walk through a, a brick wall for. So it's been a heck of a ride. Been there for about a year and a half, and uh, looking forward to uh, the next uh, couple of years here. I think we've got uh, some interesting uh, plans ahead. Yeah, I mean, clearly just a wealth of experiences and a stellar founding team. So let's dive right into Oxygen and you know what you've built so far. So. Tell us a little bit more about the problem you're solving. And not only that, but who exactly you're solving it for. So, uh, so yeah, I think also I kind of back kind of the intro piece was actually that uh, I think I realized quickly also earlier how this freelance life, if you will, kind of thing and how this progresses into SMBs. And also when you say freelance as well, honestly, even like when we are pitching like Ryan and I to partners and like other kind of uh, vendors and kind of basically strategic kind of directions. It's usually picked up also as this kind of like Uber DoorDash persona, which obviously not like nothing wrong with that kind of thing, but I think it took away the light from the actual kind of freelance and like business owners who are actually like the musicians, screenwriters, actors, actresses, like basically everything like from the creative persona to lawyers, CFAs, CPAs, which basically almost like more like the actual freelancers pre kind of this like Uber and DoorDash kind of era. So with that in mind, also Ali, obviously we start seeing how that spectrum also spans from like this like one woman shop kind of thing to a WeWork private office kind of situation. So you have like five, 10, 15 people working together in this like marketing agency or like media agency or like photo production or like video production, like kind of a company. Plus, obviously, like all the sellers and like creatives and creators out there as well. 
So that's kind of basically you realize, okay, like there's actually, there's no really banking designed for this like creator economy, if you will, in Ali, from this big like one person operation to this like agency, is that those guys are trying to get paid, they're trying to get their financials in place, they're like looking for like how to can manage taxes, how to incorporate, or should I start a business or not kind of thing? Uh, should I just like keep using my Wells Fargo personal account for like all these transactions or not? So realizing that gap in a sense of Ali, we kind of say, like, you know what, this is like a big obviously market to go after. And hence kind of why we was like been like for like a while at least like probably like last week only, like the only challenge of banking the country actually offers personal and business banking. Given we understand also that this spectrum also ranges from this like one person who actually still figuring out like should she incorporate a business or should she just like run as a personal account and then basically we help you grow all the way to become like you can actually incorporate a C Corp or LLC through auction to become a business from within our app kind of thing and then basically end up using our business banking offering. And I think also, Ryan, maybe you can shed a light as well on like having Ryan part of the founding team also kind of like trying to set up direction, kind of like who should we partner with, who should not partner with, given the alignment of the persona and like the market. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Hussein nailed it right at the top of his answer there where you know, a lot of people tend to lump the needs of a gig economy worker. You know, we're not trying to build Uber for money. So then we were very specific about what types of platforms and what type of partnerships that we want to go after, because this is a changing economy, right? The people are more and more looking to go into a freelance work. There's been some studies that have suggested upwards of 57 million Americans today are uh, freelancing in some capacity. That could be a full-time um, but they look at it as, as a full-time career. And, and really kind of the founding Genesis story was we just didn't think that there was a banking platform that did that, right? There was all the way to the right, which is a bank for SMBs. But a lot of these folks are really just trying to figure out, can I make it as a sole proprietor, as a sole business? So we wanted to give them the tools and the knowledge and, and frankly, the ability to kind of go from A all the way to running a thriving business. So that's what we've been focused on from a partnership strategy um, that really is looking out at what are some of the large marketplaces, for example, that are catering to these folks. And of course, we know the biggest names, um, but there's because of this community is getting so big, what you're finding is there's a lot of specialized marketplaces out there. So those are what we're focusing on from some of the partnership angles. And um, it's been successful so far. So uh, we look to uh, continue that. Yeah, I think it's it's a great point that you're making where the gig economy more specifically got a lot of sort of notoriety and, and press buzz at the beginning, but it seems like you defined this broader vision that's for all creators and freelancers and sole proprietors and business owners straddling sort of the personal and, and business account. So you found a really interesting space. It clearly seems to be working for you. You've recently had some pretty exciting industry recognition to that end, specifically being named Best Overall Fintech App in 2021's Fintech Breakthrough Awards. I read that you beat out 3,850 nominations from across the globe. So first off, huge congratulations on that. But double-clicking into some of those topics you mentioned, what what do you think differentiated Oxygen from a user experience perspective? I think I'm saying, I think, man, like, obviously, I first thank Sanch Ali for mentioning that as well. Definitely, we don't take it lightly, obviously, kind of thing, especially as you can imagine also, like, it's getting crowded and there's like a lot of brands out there from like white label to kind of full stack in house. So uh, I think, honestly, like, 
the way we approach it, I would say, is that we think of the experience itself more than the product. Like, let's say, for example, we kind of to even like say here, like we're launching, for example, investment brokerage like soon. And the way we are approaching that product as an example, okay, like now it's like a blank slate with a whiteboard. Okay, like, yeah, should, do you really need like another Robin Hood at this point or another kind of yeah, cash app even supports kind of buying stocks and so forth? So I think the way we approach honestly, okay, like, yeah, how can we really add value to this customer experience? It's actually honestly like from an entrepreneurship perspective, it's it's kind of like insanity to actually become like another me too in that kind of market at this point. So hence kind of why we ask like diligently take like things slowly to go back to kind of like the first principle mindset, if you were then Ari, to figure like what are you trying to achieve? Is this person trying to invest for like long-term, short-term? Is this person now like trying to invoice a client? Okay, like why are you invoicing a client? What other software are you using? How can we make that experience easier for you? Is it flow of funds? Is it like speed of funds? So all these kind of problems, I would say, honestly, from like your day-to-day experience, I think honestly, hopefully, I would say like actually that's part of shaping our products and experiences because it's designed to adapt and work for this persona given their day-to-day life more so than just checking one more box. Okay, okay those guys launched this, so let's launch this as well. Or like if those guys are doing it, like let's do something like similar, but like a little bit different. As much as yeah, let's drop all these like assumptions and presumptions aside and think back again, like what are we trying to achieve for that person? And how can we actually genuinely help them in their life as a financial service? So I think to your point, you know, feature parity is one thing, but if you go back to the roots of customer centricity, you know, you're sort of to your first principles point looking for unique places and gaps in the workflow of your customers. So it's really interesting. Anything to add there, Ryan? Yeah, I would just add, you know, one of the things that I think Hussein, who does not, he's an entrepreneur at heart, but his background is not from financial services. And I think that really is something that sets us apart. You know, my background is in financial services and payment rails and payment flow. So I understand kind of the mechanics and the plumbing of things. But Hussein is always the one to come in and say, this is what we want to do. And maybe your first inclination is to say, I don't know if that's possible, but then you think about it and you say, that's actually a, a brilliant idea. And that's the kind of things that, that you need as you're building products that are going to speak to how people in their everyday lives work through technology and it just banking and financial services not kept up. So I think that really lends to what we've been able to build. Yeah. And I'd love to double click into sort of, you're talking about people's everyday lives. And it seems like longer, but some people might forget that you officially went live with the product just over a year ago, which means the pandemic has been a real part of the equation, essentially, your entire time. So what has this meant for your strategy in terms of what you see as temporary COVID trends in everyday lives versus lasting changes to financial habits that are sort of here to stay? <laughs> like It was like interesting timing, I would say, I'm sorry, because I think to your point, it was like, 60, 70 days or so. And then like the whole planet got to a halt kind of situation. So I think also even like, I mean, like maybe like defer to Ryan as well to actually dive deep here because he did like a lot of research on that side as well. I think obviously like elephant in the room, if you were also like the whole kind of moving digital was more accelerated aggressively, obviously in the US, given actually where ironically one of the countries like were like lagging behind like a UK or like an EU kind of, uh, of like digitalization or even like a China, how like this ecosystem is like almost like cashless at this point. 
So I think for us, honestly, in the U.S. here, it was like it wasn't really like out of the ordinary to just like head down to like your next kind of local branch or open an account at a credit union because like they feel like like more community driven and so forth. So I think with that kind of lockdown also, Ali, if you will, that happened like mid-March and like everybody kind of went back home and like logged up there like on their like at, at home. I would say honestly, it was kind of like a fortunate, ironically, that we didn't really expect it to be uh, a good outcome of that kind of situation. That actually that kind of what we were preaching for like, yeah, like why are you going to a bank like physical branch or why are you driving down to deposit a check or do a transaction? So I think that's also kind of was like more accelerated aggressively with COVID uh, than not. And hence, obviously, kind of the heating that happened in fintech as well, which is, I mean, like obviously I'm talking like to Ryan myself here, we are not really like that excited to be honest with you also have like how things got a, a little bit honestly a bubble slash craziness with that space, given that acceleration and, and heat. But definitely for the greater good, obviously, it was amazing to... Uh, to actually, like, obviously, I mean, even like it was, I think it was a quote by Ford, like, ride a wave, like, you're doomed to succeed if this kind of the whole change is happening. So I think it was definitely, ironically, a lucky uh, coincidence to have this, uh, such, like, a disastrous, a pandemic, a global pandemic hit, like, 70 days after launch. So that's kind of like how those events unfolded with that. And I think, Ryan, also, if you don't mind, Ryan, like, sharing kind of a part of your side of that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think broadly, digital adoption across industries, including financial services, has leapfrogged traditional technology adoption cycles, right? Everyone was forced to figure out what their digital strategy is. I mean, my parents, I had to show them how to order online groceries because they could no longer go. And that's something that I think is going to have repercussions for many years to come. So industries like telehealth, right? Certainly in banking, we see that as a kind of an inflection point from for uh, digital banking and financial services. I mean, people kind of look at the branch model. I mean, it was always, it, it was already something that was, you know, branches are going away. Um, but people kind of look at the branch model as like, they don't even understand like why, why a branch exists anymore. And so when we're trying to think from a digital first perspective, what are the types of products that we can do? Um, because we, we look at this as an opportunity for us. There's some interesting um, research done by Cornerstone Advisors where they looked at, you know, kind of how millennials looked at from a digital bank perspective, who's their ma- major bank. And at the start of the pandemic, they did this in January of last year, it was 5%. That number has now changed to about 15% when they look at it a year later. That number is not going down. You're going to see growth there. And, you know, we want to be uh, where the side of the growth is. So that's what we're building for, kind of that, those digital native experiences that are really going to wow our end users and not just kind of having a, what's your digital strategy, which is what we see a lot of the traditional uh, institutions doing. Yeah. And to that point of sort of wowing your end user, I'm curious, we talked a little bit about the overall industry trends and sort of top-down changes that you're seeing, but on the granular level of the end user, what have you sort of learned from your customer base since being live? Any Anything surprising or interesting? That's a really good question. I mean, I think one of the things that we learned is not everybody associates with the term of freelancer. And it's just how people uh, associate from themselves. You know, when we talked about a lot of people like to put us in the bucket of the gig economy, which is inclusive of this other you know, part of the on-demand type of, of workforce. But when we wanted to focus on a freelancer, 
we learned very early on that people don't self-identify as that. They call themselves business people, uh, sole proprietors, entrepreneurs. The term freelancer is not used to self-identify that much. So from a marketing perspective, we're really thinking about how can we speak to these people outside of the products that is going to resonate with them and, and the challenges that they're trying to uh, solve for in their own uh, businesses. I think that's a great answer for the record. Yeah, I think honestly, on my side also, Ari, the, maybe the, the less obvious, even like organic, the, the password, like, which is not surprising, really actually, people actually enjoy having good experiences. So if the product itself, back to your point, so Ari, like the product, the experience, the app, the marketing, the customer support, so these pieces, honestly, like, yeah, people love to be treated well. They love, like, the kind of like, this, like, Apple iPhone experience, like, of, like, how this, like, elevated kind of like, UX and, and experience from onboarding all the way to actually getting something done. So I think that also kind of was, to your point, ironically, it was not really surprising to realize that, that actually it does actually make a huge difference as well from the aesthetics plus kind of the support side of like how to actually, if somebody calls in, like how would you manage that partnership relationship from that touch point, if you were to add it from the banking perspective? Because obviously it's a highly, I would say honestly, like highly intimate relationship honestly with banking because like you're getting your salary and income actually landing in the account. And now you're trying to buy like literally back to my like, like groceries and like trying to buy dinner from an app or something. So, uh, so all these things, it can't be like, yeah, it's not like a Twitter that can like have this like fail whale of situation. Like, yeah, we're gonna, like, we're down for a few minutes or a few hours. So I think this whole also, I think for us kind of realizing like how obviously that's like a highly intimate relationship that you have with customers dealing with the financials. Uh, it should not be taken lightly, honestly, like from like any of those touch points from app to support to every other piece uh, in that experience. Yeah, absolutely. So you talk about building a beautiful, aesthetically pleasing product that's trustworthy and resilient, and you've identified your target market that you're going after. But how do you find these customers? Can you talk a little bit about customer acquisition? Oxygen has done really interesting things between influencer marketing, ads on muni buses in San Francisco, and I'm sure a million other interesting things in between. So can you tell us a little bit more about your thinking there and some of the growth hacks that you've uncovered? Described as interesting also, Ryan. So that's, that's good as well. Because <laughs> like we did, sure. to be honest, we did like a, a few crazy things as well, kind of from like influencers to campaigns, like offline, online. I think we back to the brand also, I also we don't really take ourselves seriously. Is that like, yeah, we, we want to have fun and have fun with you. But again, obviously, like you can't really do that as a bank. So how can you balance that act of like, it's like you have to be perceived as this like trustworthy brand, obviously. So you can't really like have like too much fun in a bad way or so. So I think kind of like between obviously kind of like the direct consumer, obviously Ryan, he is like our basically heading all business development partnerships. So I think the mix between, honestly, like direct-to-consumer plus marketplaces and other partnerships with other partners was, I think, the two driving main pieces. So ironically, even though we don't really, like to Ryan's point, since it's business accounts and like a much higher LTV customer. So the whole kind of growth hacking from a cash app or like a Chime, it won't really translate well or kind of like one-to-one to auction, given that like it's a much like extensive experience. This person is actually making like good money and like they're transacting in large amounts. 
So then again, just like hop on the next app to get like five bucks or 10 bucks kind of situation. So that's kind of the unfortunate piece that we don't really, we can't really get away with such kind of growth hacks, if you will, that like a cash app or a Venmo can do this kind of situation, given that like, yeah, we expect you to uproot your life completely to go to auction. It's not like one more fintech toy to have on your phone. So hence kind of why it is like a much more extensive process, if you will, to your point earlier, like actually have this acquisition cycle, is that like since we now we know who is the person that we're going after, so kind of more like MBA, like 101 of like, like, yeah, you should market to your customer segment. It should not be that. And then obviously we get the lashback from people saying, okay, so why do you have a bus campaign if you know your customers? So that's also like, the, like yeah, honestly, we still look at density. For example, like certain cities, obviously pre-COVID was like heavy with that persona. So like if you think of like San Francisco or like Los Angeles or like Manhattan, so you can expect them and it's like, yeah, like a good chunk of that population in that city are creative CFAs, CPAs, like artists, musicians. But like, yeah, we're not going to do that like in a suburb community or outside of like urban city like this. So that's also kind of sometimes we do this like blanket kind of marketing, obviously. But again, with the consideration of like, okay, like how high is the density of that population within that same concentration of a city? Just broadly from the partnerships piece, you know, I mean, I think you touched on it earlier. Trust is key, right? Which is why we think that the partner marketplaces work so well, because they have that trust built in with their own audience. And if we can come in in an authentic way, add value to those existing platforms, I look at it as kind of similar how, you know, LinkedIn brought in some additional feature functionality that brought people back to their platforms over and over again versus some of the other earlier kind of, I guess, resume marketplaces that you only went to when you wanted to update the resume. So we bring that type of value towards an end marketplace. And so it's a real win-win and we get rewarded for that because they have that trust built up. Also on the influencer side of things, they have a a trusting audience. And this is a really interesting channel for us and and will be going forward, largely because of that trust that's built in. Now, we're obviously using B2C channels and paid marketing, but there's a whole set of marketing channels out there that we intend to tap in. And in 2021, we're uh, looking to do some more experimentation there. Very cool. Looking forward to that. Can you give us an example of one of these marketplace relationships just to illuminate the concept for the listeners? Yeah. So uh, Dribble is one that has been uh, really good for us. We worked with them uh, since primarily the beginning. They're pretty much a, a design type marketplace. Twine is another one uh, that were, has been a, a great partner for us. Freelancing Females is a company that you know has over 200,000 members. Female-driven freelancing, uh, as the name implies. But there's a whole host of them. What you're seeing in, as I mentioned earlier, is a lot of these, you're getting hyper-specialization because some of the other larger marketplaces are looking to do a little bit more of a salary arbitrage. So there's a lot of international folks, but there are a lot of marketplaces focused on local US-based talent where we operate um, that are going to focus on one niche and they want to own that. So there's a whole host of those popping up and we're uh, continuing to, to add to our partnership list uh, that way. Yeah, I know you live and breathe partnerships. So congratulations. That was a pretty extensive list right there. I want to talk about sort of reflecting on the journey so far. You went through Y Combinator, which we mentioned. You've partnered with Visa on its fast track program. You built a relationship with Green Dot that enables users to load cash onto their accounts from retail stores like Walmart. And we'll get into your fundraising success in a little bit. But I'm curious, when you reflect on the journey, 
Is there a sort of moment in time that sticks out in memory as the critical inflection point when you felt, you know, serious validation that you were onto something? It's actually honestly, to be honest with you, it's usually the the opposite of that. It's kind of usually like, how did we fuck this up in a sense kind of situation? <laughs> then okay, yeah, like this is how brilliant we are, guys. To be honest with you, <laughs> but uh, but I think honestly, like to your point, I think it's always gonna be like not even like we're done yet. Obviously, it's like a series of experiments. Is that you test things and see okay, like how did this land with people, or like did they see it like as stupid, like a good idea? It was amazing. And then obviously, yeah, we take credit when credit is due and I kind of always like try to shove that out. Like, I don't know whose stupid idea was that that did not work out. <laughs> but there definitely was like a mix of like of like successes and like huge flops kind of thing, like from marketing campaigns to partnerships to products, features and, and design kind of mistakes. So I don't think there's kind of be like a, like a big aha, like, okay, like, yeah, we, we made it. As much as honestly, two points, it's more like a, like a one step at a time. Okay, like, yeah, traction, it looks like it's working. And obviously, to your point, like, as we get into fundraising, like, investors start seeing retention, which is obviously a big thing. Okay, like, you manage to lure them in for some reason or another. Let's see if they can stay or not with you. So I think even for us, honestly, we keep, like, trying to slow down growth. Ironically, it's about, like, the cliche of how it sounds, that we should keep shut down in marketing, like, for, like, a few months, literally back-to-back. So just like contain that growth so we don't like blow up as well, like from operations and support and so forth. And yet, like fortunately, revenue is still like ramping up. So I kind of to, speaking of like how those accounts are expanding and how retention is, is good that actually that you're leading to this like negative retention and net retention. So I think all these like small signals, if you were not add and like one big loud signal that's telling you, okay, like, yeah, you made it or like this was an amazing kind of uh, success here. As much as like, yeah, all these small signals of like yeah, acquisition is working, CAC is low, retention is good, accounts are expanding in size. Like once they try to like basically play with auction for like a 20 bucks, 30 bucks from Cash App or Venmo to try the whole app and then they trust you to your point in the alley and then they start basically moving their actual money over to auction. That's so all these small signals, if you were to kind of together give you this kind of uh, like, I would say actually diagnosis of the business. It's like, yeah, I think you are in a good business given those like small signals adding up together. Even to Ryan's point, also, if Ryan walks into the room now and it's like, yeah, we're going to partner with like freelancing females, for example, it's an incredible community of like super successful women like in the US. And those guys, they're not going to associate their brand name with like something like sketchy or not actually like obviously giving what they are promising. So obviously look through the app store. Like I think we are like 4.7, 4.8, like from five stars with like almost like 4,000 plus kind of uh, like five star reviews. So uh, to your point, so I think it's actually all these signals together, the reviews, the kind of the, like the whole kind of brand, like equity, if you will, actually the kind of start like building slowly now. Plus kind of like the experience, if somebody pick up the phone and try to call us for a problem. So all these signals together, I would say on Saturday can give you this aggregate sum that you are onto something. That's great. It seems like the entrepreneurship books really resonated with you that, you know, you got to stay humble and you're only as good as your last success. So if you won't give me a moment in time, I'll try to bring one up, which is, you know, success fundraising. Hussein, you brought it up earlier. I'll keep this one open-ended, but would love to hear more about your experiences raising capital, lessons learned, 
what have you. Most recently, Oxygen raised its $17 million Series A in January from prominent VCs, individual fintech investors, and even an NFL-wide receiver. So again, any lessons learned, things you found interesting about the process, thoughts you have on the capital raising environment generally, would love to hear your reactions. It is actually, thanks so much, Ali, for connect for that as well. It was definitely like a, a good kind of milestone to your point, to celebrate to your point as well, like as a success like a milestone, which actually I think it's an interesting space also now, I get back to kind of the whole, to Ryan's point, like the heating up of fintech with this like COVID situation. So I think there's an interesting, I would say, capital market now, like there's a lot of capital going around, obviously. It's a perfect time. It's a great time to raise money now. But comes to the point of who is the investor you're taking money from, like who are you partnering with? Those guys are gonna be like also like even like marriage you can get out of it. Like there's no way out. <laughs> like, like when you take that, like take that check and like a term sheet and sign it. So I think that's also how we also take this like VC angle slash like investors angles. Okay, like, yeah, those guys should be definitely value add to us, a good association honestly for like with us and and mutual, obviously, yeah, they put their name on the company. So definitely we want to make them, like make sure that we make them look good as well. But I think also it is interesting also, I know if you think out like at the grand scheme of things of now, like if you look at the large kind of VCs or like in that space, those guys already invested in like the Chime and Revolut and like N26 of the world. So if you walk in now, Ali basically asking, okay, like, let me show you a picture of a challenger bank. It's like, yeah, like, seriously, another change in bank now. <laughs> so that's also how the capital market's like still interesting in that play. And some other investors, obviously, with that same mindset, ironically, like the opposite as well. So okay, like, yeah, I missed the boat on Chime. It's like a $30 billion company. So let me find the next Chime somewhere kind of thing. So I think it's between those diectomy or between like, yeah, like already, we already kind of missed the boat. So kind of like I already invested in Chime and Revolut and so forth. So why would I invest in an auction or somebody else now at this point? And obviously, like the obvious answer other, other than that, so okay, like, yeah, like if you miss that, probably this could be a good chance to come back into fintech and uh, take a piece of the pie. But again, you can imagine also like, that second, honestly, like the latter is actually a bigger problem now. Is that like there's a lot of VCs now throwing money at the at this market. If you could, like, yeah, like this kind of, probably there's one of them would be the next chime kind of situation. So that's honestly for us, it was kind of like a hard decision where like when to raise and how much to raise and like from who to make sure also like, yeah, we're not kind of following that kind of high beast moment of like fintech investments per se and make sure, okay, yeah, it is like for the good reason, for the good amount, for like the good investors to join and make sure obviously that those guys can see the difference also because like, again, back to your point, like of the customers and features and features that. Definitely, yeah, we can't really compare ourselves to Chime, like different customer segment, obviously, different pain points. We're like not offering like, like credit builder or like credit cards like for like subprime borrowers. So uh, it's a whole different like angle, obviously. And hence, kind of why we are fortunate that the bigger kind of tier one and tier two VCs and so forth are kind of looking at auction with a different mindset. It's not like another Chime to go after like, and put money to kind of catch up like because you missed the first boat. As much as it is different play, it's different market segment. Back to Ryan's point, like the whole, how everybody then would rather be like a creator or like doing their own thing kind of thing than joining a nine to five job. So all these macro trends also, I think it's actually working amazingly for us now. 
Uh, even there are some companies, even like we're kind of plateauing for like years back in our space as well. One of them actually is Patreon, like one of the co-founders invested in Oxygen. Another one is Gumroad as well. Uh, those guys have been like literally, I think like a decade plus, kind of plateauing and like dipping and plateauing and like raising like between years, between rounds. And now all of a sudden, everybody of those guys are raising like hundreds of million dollars, given how this space now is like blowing up. Again, like OnlyFans, despite obviously like the anger, it went like down with that side. But again, like all these examples, so I can tell you back again to the signals in the market and diagnosing kind of the ecosystem and the macro picture is that like, yeah, this market is growing massively big. And if you build the financial service kind of platform for this persona, it is a good investment. At least like we hope that we are kind of take that methodological approach back to Ryan's point, even on investments to think okay, like who could be a good partner for us down the road. We are obviously, you know, also I is like, obviously like you've been in banking all your life as well. It is a capital intensive business, like to have like cash reserves on, on hand and like the balance sheet, like how, how healthy those numbers are. So again, obviously like this puts you in a point also earlier that okay, like now some of VCs are not really patient capital, if you will. So uh, they're looking okay, like, I'm going to invest this. Like, why do you need like a 10 million or $20 million? It should be fine to have like a, a 10 million Series B. Uh, yeah, it's totally more than that you need if it's a SaaS company or like a productivity software or like you're building like a file sharing app or something. Uh, but definitely not like for this kind of financial service kind of an investment, especially if you're building the way we are building us, like we're actually literally building everything in-house. We're not really outsourcing any of these pieces. So that's always kind of makes it like my life also kind of a tough one. So I keep like disappearing from it. You know, it's like Ryan, I'm going to like see you like in a few weeks here. But like, yeah, because like obviously, yeah, it's not like easy as well to like to keep raising capital on the air as well, given like how it's kind of, it is like a super capital intensive uh, space to be in as well. Well, you covered a lot of ground there, Hussein, between right-sizing the rounds, finding the best partners. And so on the topic of partnerships, I want to flip to the other side of the coin and, and some of your other biggest partners, which are your employees. I'm curious, you know, at least some of the funding that you raise will be going towards scaling the team. So how have you thought about growing the company, maybe in terms of either what you look for in hires or how you think about which functions to build out and when? Yeah, it's a big topic for us, honestly, out of here, especially at this time, as you can imagine. Which I think, honestly, like, it is kind of maybe like we are kind of, uh, we have like this like tension in-house or like how slow we hire, especially even like despite like we need more people like ASAP kind of situation. But honestly, at least like to Ryan's point like, as well, like myself also, I'm not from banking. So honestly, we make sure so we complement each other also as that like, yeah, like Ryan, like knows the whole payment trades inside out kind of thing. Jonathan, our chief compliance officer, okay, like, yeah, this guy's like CRCM certified, and, like done the compliance, like consultancy for like all the, from Square Capital to a bank to Amex. Eric Kinney was like one of the founding members of like Lending Club on the fraud and financial crime. So uh, so all these people also like together in like around this table, so Ari, you can make sure, like, yeah, if we're discussing something, you are definitely confident that somebody are around this table now knows that space like inside out. And honestly, like in startups also generally, also you can see like this like mindset of like, yeah, let's get like some hustler and like bet on them and like she's going to be fine. But honestly, like in banking, as you can imagine, also like, yeah, this is, like you can't really move fast and break things and and let's kind of find somebody who's going to learn on the job kind of situation. So that's why honestly, maybe like we actually take that kind of like hiring more seriously and 
we tend actually to go for like more experienced, more senior, more veterans. Then the ironically, like expect from startups, like, yeah, you're basically, let's find somebody who's going to take like less cash and less salary and less comp because we just like need to conserve cash, if you will, in area. So honestly, for us, I think, and our investors, kind of fortunately, back to Ryan's point of like finding the good partners, is that they understand, yeah, if you're looking for somebody to run compliance or learn partnerships like with this kind of, such like a sophisticated system, like payment, trades, or acquire, or issuing, and so forth, you can just get somebody who's kind of like a junior, fresh out of college kind of situation, and give them like a small salary and like hope for the best kind of situation. So I think that's also confidently, this is like part of our success on salary, is that like, yeah, you have like this like incredible stellar team on each of those like basically wheels of like the, from compliance to partnerships to ops to fraud and so forth. Is that like yeah, every move we make is actually a bit calculated accordingly with all these people in the room, then trying to improvise and like try to th- try it, especially well, obviously in that industry, you shouldn't obviously do such things like the way that you would do it in another startup, if you will, like out of that space. Uh, because I definitely, like if you're not in banking, I would definitely have a different advice for those kind of entrepreneurs. Just like go be scrappy, find like a friend who actually can sleep like on a couch somewhere and just like figure it out later. But like definitely, yeah, like in banking, you know, like go hire somebody from JP Morgan, like Amex and try to poach those people with good compensations because like, yeah, you need those like incredible superstars to make it work in a sense, which is which is not the case, obviously, if you're building Uber or like if you're building like a DoorDash or like all these kind of companies. Anything to add, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I would just add from a culture perspective, before I get into that, yes, we absolutely are hiring. So if across a number of roles, so if anyone's interested listening to this, definitely reach out and get in touch. But, you know, I, th- I think it's pretty simple. It's, it's very important as we're building out the team and building out the culture that it's a fit for us. So it's got to be a hell yes, or it's a no. You know, I, I think that that's really important as we build out the team. And that goes from a skill set, but also, you know, a personality, right? Like, can they do the job? Yes. Hussein talked about, you know, the importance of in, in financial services of having people with that expertise. Do they want to do the job? That's kind of table stakes, you know, but uh, would I like to work with them, right? They've got to check all of those boxes. And while the bar is very high, we are obviously seeking to hire the best. You know, we don't want to hire jerks. These are people that we work with every day. There, We have a very smart team. We have, have a very high bar. Um, but we don't have uh, room in the organization for ego. So, and that's, and I think something that's, that's really kind of, Hussein always refers to oxygen as a family and, and it's authentic because uh, we very much are a family. So we're looking to grow to that. So if you're interested, definitely reach out. And uh, there's a number of roles open and we'll be opening up a, across a number of, of all the functions within the organization. Well, that's great to hear. And we'll certainly link your careers page to help get the word out. With that, we typically end on a rapid fire round, as you both probably know. But quite frankly, you brought all the fire possible to the main segment. The three of us are a dangerous combo and could clearly chat for hours. But I want to sincerely thank you both so much for coming on the show today. As I mentioned at the top, you've been incredible partners to Wharton FinTech, and we're eagerly awaiting Oxygen's next milestones. So wishing you all the success and thanks again. Thanks so much, Ali. We have a Yeah, thanks so much, Ali. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the lively conversation. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or engaging with us on social media. It means a lot and meaningfully helps spread the word to more listeners. 
If you're looking for more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. Here you will find interviews, articles, videos, and more content than you could ever ask for, analyzing and amplifying innumerable vantage points on the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Raphael Austria. Signing off, I'm your host, Ali McCluskey. Be well.